I should like to call your attention this evening to the words which are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Luke. In chapter 16, from verse 19 to the end of the chapter, from verse 19 to verse 31, in other words, in the 16th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke, it is our Lord's statement, the well-known and familiar statement, concerning the rich men and the beggar Lazarus. Now you notice that we are not told that this is a parable. So one deduces that it is a true story, a true statement. Our Lord was not speaking a parable here. He was making a statement of fact. This is perhaps the most solemn statement that our Lord ever made. The most solemn statement even that our Lord himself ever made. And I would ask you to bear in mind as we consider the statement that it is his statement. It isn't mine. It isn't even that of one of the apostles. It is the statement of the Son of God himself. So what we are going to examine and look at together comes to us with no less an authority than that. There are things here that no human being could say, things which no human being has a right to say. It is a statement by the one who said, You hath seen me, hath seen the Father. This is the statement of the incarnate God, the incarnation of the love of God. And that, of course, adds a peculiar authority to it and a peculiar solemnity and seriousness. Now, why did our Lord ever make this statement? The answer is, of course, that he made it in order to illustrate and to emphasize his teaching. And he spoke it, it seems to me, in particular, to emphasize and to underline and to reiterate and to enforce what he had been saying as it is recorded in the first 18 verses of the chapter. Our Lord always had a reason for saying a thing like this. This is true, of course, of all his parables. He spoke them in order to illustrate a point or something in his message. And he tells this story in exactly the same way. It's to bring home to people in the form of an illustration. What he had already been laying down more in the form perhaps of direct teaching and propositions. Here we shall find that all the essential characteristics of his teaching are held before us with very great clarity. Now, let me first of all remind you of some of the general characteristics of his teaching. I'm doing this, my dear friend, because there's so much confusion in this modern world of ours as to what his teaching is. Of all the tragedies in the world, the greatest is the confusion as to the Christian message, the truth as it is in Christ Jesus. Let's look at its general characteristics. What is it that characterizes his teaching as we have it in this story? Well, the first thing is this. It is a teaching which is entirely different from the teaching of everybody else. There's an authority 
a power, an understanding, which you'll never find in any other speaker. That Roman soldier that was sent to arrest him said the simple truth when he said, no man ever spake like this man. Everybody noticed that this man speaketh with authority and not as the scribes and Pharisees. It is unique teaching and therefore it is surprising teaching. He cuts across all our modes of thought. He doesn't think as we think. He stands alone and his message is quite unique. The second thing that is always characteristic of his message is that it is a call for thought, a call for reason, a call for wisdom. Now, I'm emphasizing this for this reason, that the popular and the common thing to say about Christianity is that it's just feeble sentimentality, emotionalism, and that people who are Christians are Christians because they don't think, because they don't reason, because they don't use their brains. They just abdicate from all thought, pull down the blinds, and let them go themselves go in some kind of emotional riot. There is nothing which is further removed from the truth than just that. Now, that comes out very prominently here. You see, it is this man, this rich man, Dives, who's interested in phenomena and something exciting. Don't you see him arguing with Moses? He says, look here, if you send somebody from the dead to speak to them, they'll repent. Give them something exciting, some phenomenon. No, no, says Moses. People don't become Christians like that. It's Moses and the prophet. And you know, our Lord was, he spoke this parable of his about the rich men and his steward. In order to make this very point, you remember this man, he was the steward of a rich man and He'd done something wrong, and he realized he was going to be dismissed. What does he do? Well, he says, I'm going to be in trouble, so I'd better make some preparation. So he called the debtors, and he said, how much do you owe? Well, he said, I owe a hundred measures of oil. Right, said the steward. You just scratch that out and put down fifty instead. He ingratiates himself with this man, knowing this man will therefore help him. The same with the other who owed a hundred measures of wheat. Reduce that to eighty, he said. And this is what I'm told, the Lord commended the unjust steward because he'd done wisely. In other words, the men began to think. We are told that about him. Then the steward said within himself, what shall I do? He asks a question. He faces his position. He begins to reason about it and he decides what to do. Our Lord commends that. Now that's typical Christianity. He goes on to say, I say unto you, make to yourselves friend of the, friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when you fail, when you come to die, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. In other words, the whole burden of his teaching in the whole chapter is to urge us to think and to reason and to prepare and really to face the facts of our situation in this life and in this world. He always does that. The gospel of Jesus Christ calls everybody to stop and to think and to ask certain questions. There's nothing under the sun that does that tonight but this. Your newspapers are interesting you, entertaining you. Your television, your wireless, your drink, your gambling, all of them are stopping your thinking. Here's the only thing that asks you to think. Very well. The third characteristic is this. The teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ always makes the problem of life something which is essentially simple. Didn't you feel that as you heard this great story again? 
It's we who make the complications. Our palaces, our finery, our drink, our business, and all these things. We make the complications. There's something strikingly, starkly simple about our Lord's view of it all. He reduces all the complications concerning life to just one or two primary principles. That's why the gospel is simple. It gets at the heart of the matter. It isn't lost in details. It's we who are guilty of that. We miss the wood because of the trees. We miss the big things in life. We are interested in so many different things. We never pay attention to the really big and vital and lasting things. But our Lord, as here, always brings us back to the fundamentals, to the essential simplicities. You know, there are very few things that we really need to know about life. He always talks about them. The fourth characteristic is that he always brings it to this, that there are only two ways, only two possibilities. You see, in this picture there are two men. One's right, one's wrong. He's already put it in words in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Either or he cannot serve God and mammon. And mammon doesn't only mean money. He means the world, all that money can buy, all that people are interested in. It's either or, and there are only two ways. The Bible's full of this ultimate choice, and it brings it down to just these two things. Then, of course, having said that, it always calls for a choice and for a decision. You've got to decide whether you serve God or mammon. You've got to decide whether you live like Dives, the rich man, or whether you live like Lazarus. You've got to decide. Indeed, even Dives sees this. Dives himself, the rich man, helps to emphasize this point. He says, look here, Father, I would that thou wouldest send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also may come to this place of torment. And then he argues again. He says, nay, Father Abram, if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. Even he sees it now. He says, these people need to think again. They need to change their minds. They need to take the right choice. At the moment they're taking the wrong choice, as I took the wrong choice, send Lazarus to warn them that they may take the right choice and live accordingly. He always calls for a choice and for a decision. Choose this day whom he will service. serve. That is the great statement running right through the Bible. Who do you belong to? Who are you following? We are confronted by this either or God or everything that is opposed to God. And lastly, of course, and here in a supreme manner, our Lord always emphasizes the tragic folly of making the wrong choice. Very well, my friends, there are the general characteristics of his teaching, which he now illustrates by stating this dramatic story concerning these two men. What does he want to teach? What's his message? I'll summarize it for you under three principles. Here's the first. The most important thing in life. What is the most important thing in life? That's what the gospel is about. It's about life. 
And it brings us immediately to this question. What's the most important thing in life, in this world? That's the simplicity that he holds before us in this naked, stark manner. What is it? Well, now then, let's see how he works it out. First of all, he tells us what is not important. And, of course, you'll notice that what he says is unimportant is what we regard as tremendously important. That's why I said that his message is always different from every other, and it's always surprising. He cuts across all our thinking. What's unimportant? What is the thing that really we shouldn't put first? Well, first of all, he says, don't put circumstances first. What do you mean, says someone? Well, I'll tell you. Look at this rich man, David. The man who was so wrong. The man who finds himself in misery and wretchedness. What did he put first? He put first circumstances. Uh, what were they? Well, rich. He's a rich man. He's clothed in purple and fine linen. He fared sumptuously every day. He's reminded by Abraham that he'd had his good things when he was in this world of time. What about the other men? Lazarus, well, he's a beggar. He doesn't live in the palace. He lives at the gate. He's even lying at the gate. The dogs are there licking his wounds. What does he eat? Does he fare sumptuously? No. He uh, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. This is our Lord's account. This is our Lord's picture. And you see, to him this is unimportant. This isn't what matters. But you see, to Divius, to the rich men, it mattered tremendously, and it matters to people today. This is what the world is putting before God and Christ tonight. Riches. Money. Look what it can buy. That's why men and women by the thousand, perhaps million tonight, are working out football pools. Money. This vast sum of money. Marvelous. They want to be rich. You can do so much when you've got riches. That's the way really to enjoy life in this world. To have plenty of money. Rich. Clothed in purple and fine linen. What a picture. There it is in all the society magazines. It comes into the daily newspapers. Smart, clothed, figure, wonderful. This is what makes life. Purple and fine linen. Marvelous. It's the badge of greatness. It's the talisman that gives you entry into the places that really matter. Oh, the time and the attention that is given to clothing and to money and the thought about all these things and then the faring sumptuously, the dinners and the menu and the wine and the marvelous and writing about it, articles about it, what's recommended this week. You'll see it in the popular, in the, and, 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 and even in the more learned weekly journals that the attention that is made to how you fare, to your diet, to your food, to your feasting, fared sumptuously. Good things, yes, the supposed good time, having a good time, going up to London to have a good time. Here it is, with all the perfect description of which our Lord alone is capable. But you see, our Lord makes nothing of these things. This other man, he's a beggar, he's got nothing. No, this isn't to commend poverty or beggary, of course not. That's not the point our Lord's making. All he's saying is this. This is not the thing that matters primarily. 
This is not the thing you put first. This is not the thing you live for. That's what's wrong. We need food. We need clothing. We need all these things. But we don't live for them. This man lived for them. The other men regarded them as indifferent. They really didn't matter. He was concerned about something else. Well, now there's one thing. Another thing you see that our Lord shows to be so unimportant is the life of the body. This rich man was very healthy. He lived a very healthy life. The other man at his gate, we are told, was full of sores. But you see in this story that's comparatively insignificant and unimportant. Our Lord doesn't make a big point of this. This isn't why he spoke the story in order to talk about health and extension of our life in this world and the health of the body and the deliverance of the body from illness and diseases. No, no, he's not interested. That's comparatively unimportant. Again, don't misunderstand That doesn't mean to say that the Christian teaching is that health doesn't matter. It does matter. But again, you don't put it first. Health of body is not the first thing. It's not the greatest thing. But the state's very concerned about this. We all are. And while we are concentrating on the health of the body and the extension of the little time we spend in this world, we are neglecting something more important. He's not interested very much in the life of the body. And the third thing I note negatively is this. That he doesn't seem to be very concerned as to the cause of death. All our Lord tells us is that the two men died. Doesn't tell us what they died of. Why? Well, it doesn't matter, you know. What's it matter what a man dies of? Matters to a doctor, he's got to put it on the death certificate. Matters to the state and its records. Doesn't matter, you know, in eternity. Doesn't matter in the sight of God. Whether you die quietly in your bed or killed on a field of battle or exploded by a bomb, it doesn't matter. The cause of death to our Lord is insignificant. It doesn't matter. But this is what the world concentrates on, isn't it? The world puts this on the front page. This is the big thing. It doesn't ask, how exactly did a man face the end? It says now, was he killed by a bomb? Was he killed in war? With a great excitement as to the cause of death. But according to our Lord's teaching, this is comparatively insignificant and unimportant. Well, what is important? What is it that really matters in life? What is the most important thing of all? Our Lord answers the question. It is a man's outlook upon life. It is a man's attitude to life. What does our Lord say is really important? Well, now look at this story for yourselves. Analyze it. And you'll discover a most extraordinary thing. The thing our Lord puts first is this. Is the fact of death. Indeed, this whole story is really an expanded treatment of the whole question of the fact of death. Did you notice that? Our Lord, you see, seems to dismiss the life of these two men in very brief compass. There was a certain rich man which clothed, was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. That's all our Lord has got to say about the earthly life of those two men. Just that and no more. Then he goes on. Now he begins to deal with his theme. And it came to pass. What came to pass? Oh, what came to pass was 
that the two men died. It came to pass that the beggar died. The rich man also died. This is the thing that our Lord is interested in. All that goes before, well, he just mentions it that we may have some idea of the two men, but he says the really important thing is this. The two men died. And from there on, he begins to show the essential difference between the two. It came to pass. And it always comes to pass. It has come to pass about everybody who's ever lived in this world before us. It came to pass that they died. And it will come to pass, my dear friends, that you and I will die. This is what our Lord's interested in. All the antecedents, he summarizes very briefly, then he gives the rest of his time to say, now then, this is the thing. They both died. This world is only a temporary world. The gospel of Jesus Christ primarily is not to prepare us for life in this world, it's to prepare us for life in the next world. Because as I'm going to show you, it's only the man who's prepared for the next who knows how to live in this. So he puts this first. Then you see what he also emphasizes is this. Is the state of a man's soul. His condition as he dies. Not the cause of his death. Not the physical cause. But the state of the man's soul. And in other words he's interested in a man's relationship to God. And his eternal destiny. That according to our Lord is the most important thing in life. Not your wealth or your poverty. Not your clothing and your decorations. Not the amount of food you eat. Not the state of your physical health. These things that absorb us and our time and attention about which we think and dream and plan so much. My dear friends, our Lord says these are not the things. This is the thing that matters. How you die. The state of your soul, your relationship to God, your eternal destiny. Very well, let me come to my second proposition. Why is it that that is the most important thing of all? Our Lord lays that down as a proposition, that that is the most important thing. Now then, let's consider this. Why is this the most important thing of all? Well, he answers the question abundantly. The first answer he gives is that this is the most important thing of all because this determines, as I say, the way in which we live and what we make of life in this world. As a man thinks or thinketh, so he is and so he does. You see, every man of us is showing his philosophy of life by the way in which he's living. Our living, our practice, our conduct and behavior is nothing but the outworking and the expression of what we really believe. And the people who are living the kind of life that this man, rich man lived tonight are doing so because that's their view of life, that's their philosophy of life. What a man thinks, so he is, so he does. Though he has lived one kind of life, because that's the sort of life he believed in, that was his view of life. Life to him was a place in which a man has a good time, has his good things, has his palace and his food and his purple and fine linen and all the rest of it. That's, he says, the way to live. That's the way for a man to enjoy himself. 
You see, it determined the way in which he lived. That is, again, I say, why Dives was so urgent that somebody should be said to warn his brothers. He said, you know, they've got the wrong view of life. They are viewing it as I viewed it. I see my mistake now. Go and tell them. Tell them to see it then. You notice the word that he used. What an extraordinary thing. Yes, a sermon from hell. He said, nay, Father Abram, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And repentance means not only that you think again, but that you turn round. That you start doing something you never did before and stop doing what you had been doing before. Repentance is a change of mind, a change of outlook, and a change of behavior. And that is why our blessed Lord himself says this to us. I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. What he means is this. He says, now look here. Get a right view of life. Begin to look at your life in the light of eternity. Then, realizing that you're destined for eternity, make a right use of your money while you're here. Don't live on for yourself. Don't live and spend your money on your clothing and on your food and on your drink and on your pleasures. Make to yourselves friends. Use your money in a right way so that when you do die, you'll find that it'll have paid you to do so. You see, your view of life determines the way that you live. It'll determine your use of your money and of all your talents and of all your faculties. There's no question about that. We've all got the same faculties, the same talents in various measures. Well, what determines how a man lives in this world? Oh, what decides that is a man's view, his total view of life. Now, I could illustrate this to you at great length. You look at the great men who are pictured in the Bible, the great patriarchs, the great saints. They were men who suffered and endured a lot. Why did they do so? Look at a man like Moses. Moses, you know, if he'd played his cards properly, could have been a very great man. He'd been adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He was regarded as her son. He could have been a great general. He could have been a prince. He might have had anything. But he didn't, you remember? He had a very troubled life. Why? Well, you ask the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, and he'll tell you that the whole secret was this. He chose, he preferred to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to endure the pleasure of sin for a season. The man took a long view. He'd got a philosophy of life. He said, I'm only here for a while. Eternity lies ahead of me. And because he had that view, he decided to live like this. He preferred to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He didn't just plunge into pleasures. He said, how long do they last? He began to ask questions. He thought he had a view of life and his whole conduct was determined and governed by that. And that's exactly what our Lord is teaching right through this chapter. This is the most important thing in life and in this world because it determines the way in which we live. The greatest benefactors this world has ever known have been the Christian saints. Why? Well, you see, they realized their responsibility to God and they didn't live a selfish life. They lived a life of service. They lived as Christ had lived. They did their utmost to follow him because of their view of what was coming. But let me give you another reason why this is the most important and chiefest thing. It not only determines how a man lives in this world, it affects the actual mode of death. 
Now there's a difference between the cause of death and the mode of death. The cause of death, as I say, may be one of many things. It may be illness, it may be accident, it may be a bomb, it may be war. That's the cause of death. Our Lord's not interested in that. But he's very interested in the mode of death. Did you notice it? This is one of the most wonderful things in this story. It came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. That's what I mean by a difference in the mode of death. What a difference, what a contrast. The rich man dies and all we can be told about him is that he was buried. But what we are told about the other man is that when he died, he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The way a man goes out of this life and into the next is altogether different according to the view which he holds on these matters. The rich man died alone. He couldn't take his boon companions with him. He can't take his purple and his fine linen. He can't take his great feast and his sideboard. He can take none of these things. He goes empty-handed without a friend. He goes alone. Unattended, buried. But not so Lazarus. Here is one who is taken hold of by the angels and born on angels' wings into the bosom of Abraham in heaven. Oh, is there anything more important than this, than the mode of death, the way in which we die? You see, it's got to come to every one of us. It came to pass, I say. It'll come to pass about you. Somebody will say about you, it came to pass that at a given point he died. And then how do you die? This last great journey, this exit, this quietus, how do you make it? Are you going out of it alone and just be buried like a dog? Or will you be carried on angels' wings? There's nothing more wonderful about this Christian message than just this, that it affects so vitally the actual mode of death. Oh, the Bible's full of this sort of thing. It talks about the Christians falling on sleep. Listen to the Apostle Paul, how he puts it. He says to the Philippians, I am in a strait betwixt two things. It's better for you that I should remain, but as for myself, I prefer, he says, to go on to be with Christ, which is far better. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's how he views it. But listen to him at the very end of his life. Here he is, an old man. Death is at the door. And he looks into the face of death and he says, I am now ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my cause. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not only unto me, but unto all them also that love is appearing. That's the way to die. Listen to Peter. Peter, writing again as an old man at the end of his life in his second epistle, chapter 1, says, I've got to put off this, my tabernacle. That's all it is, this old body of which the world makes so much in its food, its clothing, its health, and all the rest of it. My tabernacle is only a tent, says Peter. It's only a temporary residence. I've got to put off this, my earthly tabernacle. I know it's coming soon, but it's all right. He knows where he's going. He'll not be alone. Born on the wings of angels into Abraham's bosom. 
My friend, this is the thing our Lord's emphasizing. Not what causes your death, but the way in which you die. Are you ready to die? You ready to go out of this life? Day by day, people are going out of it. They're going out in different ways. We've had great reminders of that during this last week, haven't we? There are many ways of going out of this life. I need say no more. You know what I've got in my mind? It's in your mind. How are you going out? Can you look forward to the wings of angels bearing you? Do you know that when you cross that last river, when you make your final exit, that you'll not be alone? You'll be surrounded by the angels of God. You'll see the brightness of their glory. They'll keep you from all harm, all pain, all wretchedness, all agony. They'll be with you and they'll support you. They'll undertake for you. They'll carry you to the very bosom of God himself. Oh, I say this is the most important thing in life because it not only determines how we live, it determines how we die. But let me go on. It also affects our state after death. And this is the thing which our Lord is emphasizing. Is there ever a bigger contrast found anywhere in all literature than what we find here? Here's the rich man in hell. He lift up his eyes being in torments and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. The contrast. You see, the way you view life determines your state after death as well as the mode of your death. And, of course, the contrast is pointed once and forever by Abram. Abram said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted. And thou art tormented. I say, as I said at the beginning, no one has a right to speak like this except the Son of God. I can't see beyond the veil. You can't. Nobody can. Your great philosopher says he doesn't believe in it. He doesn't know. He knows no more than you and I do. He's purely speculating. It's only his own idea. Here is the only one who has a right to speak. He's come from there. He knows. And it's he who says it. And he says that there are only two destinies, heaven and hell. And it is the difference between the bliss and the peace and the joy of heaven and the flame and the torment and the agony and the misery of hell. You see, hell means a place of eternal remorse. Divey sees his error, sees his mistake. He's suffering in the flame. He wishes he could get out of it. He's suffering. That's the thing that our Lord emphasizes. This view which we take of life in this world is going to determine our state after death. And it's going to be one of these two. But let me add the final word. It not only affects our state after death, it affects that state unchangeably and eternally. Beside all this between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. I say again, I wouldn't dare say a thing like this. It's the Son of God who says it. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who says it. It's the one that so loved the world that he gave 
himself upon that cross. It's the incarnation of God's love who says it. He says that our state is eternally fixed, everlastingly, unchangeably. Though you may see you're wrong, then you can't get out of it. It's fixed. The gulf is unbridgeable. Very well, my friends, it's just my simple duty to tell you this and to remind you of it. Men and women will tell you there's a second chance. How do they know? Oh, they say, but the love of God makes the other impossible, does it? Do you know more about the love of God than the Lord Jesus Christ? Stop a moment and think what you're saying. Stop your theorizing. Stop being clever. He says, and he is God incarnate, that there is an unbridgeable gulf And that our eternal fate and destiny is decided in this life and in this world by what we believe. Very well, that brings me to my third and my last proposition. How can I then get the right view of life? What am I to believe? What must happen to me? What must I do in order to make sure on this matter and avoid the fate of the rich men diving? The answer is perfectly simple. It's not a question of being frightened. That's why I've tried to control myself as I'm preaching tonight. I'm not here to frighten you. Nobody can ever be frightened into salvation. It's not a matter of being frightened. It's not a matter of some startling phenomenon that will awaken us and shake us. It's not the question of having a visible proof. These are the things which men make so much of, are they not? The man says, arguing like this rich man dies, if only I knew, if only I had absolute proof, if only someone from the dead, as it were, could come, then I'd believe. No, no, says Abram, you wouldn't. And it's our Lord who's saying the same thing. And, of course, this is quite right. You would have thought that two world wars in this present century would have shaken the whole world, would have called everybody to repentance. You would have thought that people who passed through the bombing in the last war would never sin again. Did it have that effect? Of course it didn't. It drove them worse than they were before. Troubles and wars and problems very rarely make us better than we were before. We are better for a while and then we forget it and all reverts to where it was before. Indeed, our Lord himself is very clear on this point. Abraham says here, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. What our Lord means is this, you see. He says, look here, you people are arguing that if only you had some tangible proof. He says, you're getting it. Look at me. They saw him. They heard him. They saw his miracles. Did that make them believe? No, no. He could heal the sick, cure the lame and the blind. He could raise the dead. You'd have thought that would have convinced everybody. The effect it had upon them was to make them crucify him. They say, if a man literally rose from the dead, we'll believe. He did rise from the dead, and still they don't believe. No, no, that's not the way. There's only one way. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. You notice how this is repeated here. Abraham saith unto him, they have Moses and the prophets. 
Look here, says the rich man in hell. I pray thee, Father Abram, that thou wouldest send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abram said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he says that isn't enough. There must be something more, some phenomenon, something striking, marvelous. No, no. If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, nothing else will persuade them. That's why, my friends, I'm not trying to frighten you. That's why I never bring pressure to bear at the end of a service. I don't want to make people decide I can't. It's Moses and the prophets. That's why I don't tell affecting stories and play on your feelings. It won't do it. It'll produce some, something temporary. It won't last. No, no, there's only one way. The truth, Moses and the prophets, receiving, understanding this. Our Lord has already said it himself. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time the kingdom of God is preached. And every man who's got any sense presses into it. What's he talking about? Well, it comes to this. There's only one way to get the right view of life. It is to hear and to pay heed unto and to listen and to follow the teaching of Moses and the prophets. What's this? Well, here it is. You see, it's the whole Bible. Moses and the prophets. That's the whole of your Old Testament. Moses and the law. What does he teach us? What has Moses got to tell me? Do you want light? Listen to Moses. What is it? Well, it's all here, right in the Old Testament. The five books of Moses. What is it? Oh, it's about God. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth and all that in them is. God making men in his own image. God revealing himself, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God. Man as a creature responsible to God. But then Moses goes on to tell us why we are as we are. Man's fall, man's sin, man's misery consequent upon it. But he doesn't leave it at that. The law of God. God's demands. The Ten Commandments. You must worship God and serve him only. You must not bow down to a graven image. You must not take God's name in vain. You must observe his day. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife or ox or ass. Here it is. God's demand. Righteousness. Holiness. Purity of living. Why? Well, because God is going to judge us all. That's what Moses teaches. God's utter holiness. God's righteousness. God the judge of the whole earth. God calling upon men to serve him and to live to his glory. Telling them he's going to judge them in terms of that. The judgment of God. And let's remember this as our Lord puts it here. Ye are they which justify yourselves before men. But God seeth your hearts. That's how God is going to judge us, not by the outward show, not by your morality, which is so much better than that of some sinner in a gutter. God seeth the heart. You may never have committed adultery, you may never have got drunk, but what about your heart? How often have you committed adultery in your heart? God knows your hearts. God sees us as we are. The judgment is a real one. He knows all about us. He knows the secret things, and all will be laid open before him. That's the teaching of Moses. Listen to it. And the teaching of the prophets is the same. 
But listen, we are told this about the law. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. That's our law summing up of this matter. That's Moses' teaching. The law of a righteous and a holy God making its demands and will be judged by it. And it will never fail. It will stand. Nothing can remove it. The prophets, what's their teaching? Exactly the same. They call the nation to repentance. They call the nation back to obedience to God. They warn it of judgment. They say that there is no hope for people unless they repent. It's the universal teaching of all the prophets. Let me then summarize for you the teaching of the law and the prophets, Moses and the prophets. It's this. That by the law is the knowledge of sin. Which means this, that no man can ever justify himself before God. We think we can, of course, that's why our Lord says, Ye are they that justify yourselves before men. You say, look at the life I'm living, look at that man, what a wonderful life. There's a man who doesn't believe in Christ, he doesn't believe in God, but look at the good he's doing, look at the sacrifice he's made, justifying himself, and the world praises him. What are we told about it? God knoweth your hearts, and that which is highly esteemed amongst men. Accorded in your newspapers, praised in the obituary notices, marvelous men, wonderful life. Abomination in the sight of God, vileness, foulness, utter unworthiness. This is the verdict, there it is. No man can stand before God. No man can ever justify himself. No man can ever work up a righteousness that will satisfy God. That's what Moses and the prophet teach us. They condemn us. We're all sin. We've all come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. They say you need salvation. You're lost. You're hopeless. Moses and the prophets, have you heard them preaching? But thank God Moses and the prophets didn't stop at that. That's how they begin, but they don't end like that. Moses and the prophets says, yes, you're lost, you're damned, you're helpless, you're hopeless. But there is a hope. And it's a hope that comes from God. Moses, Genesis 3.15, See to the woman, shall bruise the serpent's head. Moses tells you that. You're without excuse. If you had nothing but your Old Testament, you've no right to go to hell. Moses tells you, the seed of the woman. There's a man coming, born of a woman, who's going to redeem. And then go on and read the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. Do you ever read them? You ought to. You may find yourself in hell because you haven't read these. Don't listen to these fools who deride them. Read about the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. Read about the paschal lamb that was slain and the blood painted upon the doorposts as the children of Israel came out of Egypt. What's it all about? Oh, this is but a promise and a prophecy of a lamb of God that is going to come that shall save and take away the sin of the world. Moses tells you that. All the types, all the blood of bulls and goats, the ashes of an heifer, offerings and sacrifices, they're all saying, there's a deliverer coming. God is going to provide a lamb, a Messiah. Moses tells you that. Listen to him. It's the way to save you from the torment and from the flame. And the prophets join him in saying the same thing. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith my God. Yes, there is one who's going to be led as a lamb to the slaughter. I see him, says Isaiah. I see him with his visage marred, such that no man should desire him. 
I see him bruised. I see him smitten of God. Who's this? This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God that's going to come. The, the one who's going to bear our punishment in order that we may be reconciled to God and spared the torment of hell. Repent and believe. Moses and the prophets are all preaching this great message to us. But you know, we are not left with it. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached. He says, look here, I am the fulfillment of the prophecies of Moses and the prophets. And I have come. I am the Son of God. I have come to set up the kingdom of God. I'm here to open the gate. I'm going to have my body broken so that through me you can pass from hell to heaven, as it were, and from earth to heaven and from men to God and from judgment into life. The kingdom of God is preached. And so you see Moses and the prophets and the Son of God and the apostles to whom he gave his message concerning himself. They come to us and they say this. Realize the facts. You've got to die. It'll come to pass that you die and you'll stand before God. And as you are, you can't. You're lost. You're a sinner. You're damned. You're vile. You can't stand in his presence. But listen. There is a way for men to be saved. We can't justify ourselves before God. We can before men, but not before God. And the great question is, how can a man be just with God? How can a man stand righteous and just and free in the presence of God? Listen to the Apostle Paul answering it once and forever in Romans 3. He says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now... The righteousness of God without the law, apart from the law, is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Moses and the prophets are witnesses to this great thing. They said it was coming, it's come, but now the righteousness of God, of God without the law is manifested, it's revealed, even the righteousness of God which is by faith in Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be the just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. There it is, my friend. The preaching of the Son of God, witnessed unto by Moses and the prophets. It's happened, it's revealed. Though you and I are sinners, vile and hopeless, and can never put ourselves right, he, the Son of God, has come, taken our place, borne our punishment, to put us right with God. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. Be justified by faith. You'll never make yourself right, he'll put you right. Not your works, his righteousness. It's all by faith. It all simply means believing. That is why our Lord puts it like this. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time the kingdom of God is preached. And every man presseth into it. He's seen the condemnation. Moses and the law have condemned him. They say the Messiah is coming. He's come. And they're pressing into it. They're running into it. Have you done that? Are you pressing or have you pressed into the kingdom of God? 
Have you believed the message of the law, Moses, and the prophets? Have you listened to the preaching of Dives from hell? Have you repented? If one went into them from the dead, they'll repent. Have you done it? Have you seen the folly of your view of life and your way of life? Have you realized you've got to stand before God in judgment? Have you realized that there is an eternal misery ahead of you if you die as you are? Have you listened? Have you thought again? Have you repented? Have you changed your mind? Have you changed your life? Have you believed the message of free justification in Christ who has been made a sin offering for us? And have you given proof that you've done it seriously, soberly, genuinely, by turning from the world, renouncing its life, and giving yourself unreservedly and wholly unto our blessed Lord and Savior? That's the way. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Have you been persuaded by Moses and the prophets? Have you been persuaded by the Son of God? He tells you. He came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. He came because all had failed and none could ever succeed. He's in the world. He came to it. He died because it's the only way. Have you heard him? Has he persuaded you? Has Dives persuaded you? Have you pressed into the kingdom as the result of hearing and receiving and believing and acting on the message, my dear friend, if you do so? When your time comes to die, you will likewise be carried by the angels on their blessed wings into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ to be with him which is far better. You won't die in darkness. You won't die in despair and in hopelessness. Whatever your gifts and your brilliance. No, no. You'll know in whom you have believed. And you'll know that he will keep that which you have committed unto him against that day. You'll die as the saints have died. You'll be carried and wafted on angels' wings. Into the presence of the eternal God. And you will hear him saying unto you, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou in into the joy of the Lord. Yes, you will have so lived in this world that as our Lord puts it, that when you come to die, you will be received into everlasting habitations. Make to yourselves friends with the memon of unrighteousness that when you fail, that when your life, your health has failed and you die, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. You'll die knowing that you're going into one of those mansions which your blessed Lord and God has told you he's gone before you to prepare for you and which he's furnished for you and in which you'll spend a glorious eternity. Oh, if you pay heed to Moses and the prophets and the Son of God, you know when you come to die, you'll verify Peter's words. You'll have an abundant entry ministered unto you into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the way to die and to look forward to an eternity of bliss. Very well, let's leave it like this. Make this your prayer. The prayer of the saintly Bishop Ken of 300 years ago. Teach me to live that I may dread the grave as little as my bed. 
Teach me to die, that so I may rise glorious at the awful day. Make that your prayer. And then join John Senek, a saint of 200 years ago. So, he says, whene'er in death I slumber, let me rise. With the wise counted in their number. Are you among the wise? The wise are those who listen to Moses and the prophets. To divings from hell to the Son of God. Our blessed Lord and Savior. Are you among them? Have you been persuaded? Have you pressed into the kingdom of God? If you haven't, do so now. Make no tarrying. And be ye saved. Amen.